Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so today on the show, we're combining a couple of conversations that I've had this year with the author and philosopher Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a teacher, public speaker, and author of a number of books, including The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, Sacred Economics, and The Ascent of Humanity. He also wrote a widely circulated article on COVID-19 last spring called The Coronation. Foundational to Charles's outlook on the world is what he dubs the story of separation. Now, we do address this in our conversation, but I feel compelled to outline the basic tenets of it here as it is so fundamental to much of Charles's work. So Charles contends that humans have developed a story that we are discrete individuals living among other separate individuals in an external universe that is separate from us. And this duality influences our primary spiritual and scientific stories, the separation of the spiritual from the material and the separation of the mind from the body. And the story contributes to the narrative of evolutionary biology that frames life as a competition where only the fittest will survive. It informs capitalism, our primary economic system, which yields haves and have-nots. It reinforces our separateness and presumed dominion over nature. And Charles contends that our existential climate crisis is connected to this very idea that we believe that we are not part of it. Much of Charles's work focuses on changing this myth that upholds this imagined order. And he maintains that we can choose another story of interdependence and connection that can address so many of these salient issues from loneliness to income inequality and global warming. Now we touch on a lot of issues from the sacred nature of the material world uh, to the fundamental nature of consciousness, the failing political system, climate change, and the emergence of this new cultural story. Now last summer, Commune released a course with Charles called Political Hope, which implored people to step out of the polarized political invective. And this course really struck a chord with people who have been disenchanted with hyper-partisanship. So if you're interested in accessing this course and trying Commune membership for free for 14 days, go to onecommune.com slash join. I hope you enjoy this extended conversation with Charles Eisenstein. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. So as we were eating nuts in preparation um, for this conversation, I was telling you about a sort of an, like a bit of an emotional process that I'm going through right now, <clears throat> where we have a house that's been in the family for a hundred years that um, is a lovely, beautiful house, not that far from where you live, and um, that my daughter was actually born in that front room 
and on a stormy day in August and the skies cleared and a rainbow appeared and the bluefish started jumping and all this um, kind of beautiful bucolic kind of scene and we've had so many memories there and um, but it's a completely irrational thing to own and to have and to maintain and so to satisfy sort of our rational brain um, <coughs> we've been sort of pathetically trying to sell it for a long time in an effort really not to sell it and then sort of lo and behold someone came along and did purchase it and we're just going to contract now and you know dealing with this idea of letting go of something in the material world that does legitimately hold, I guess, what you might think of as some, you might define as something sacred. And I guess my question would be is like, when do things in the material world hold like a, a something, a symbolic value that is real and important and not just kind of fleeting and ephemeral? It's not just a symbolic value. You could ask the same question about your old dog. You know, this dog is, well, I have a sentimental attachment to it. It's been in the family for a long time, but it can no longer do the work that the dog used to do to corral the chickens or whatever it did. Um, so rationally, there's no reason to keep, to keep maintaining this dog. Why don't we just put it down? We don't think that, like we wouldn't do that for a beloved dog or your, you know, grandmother or something like that. <laughs> but for a house, that's okay, right? Because this house is not a being. It's just a material thing. Mm. This devaluation of materiality, I think, is a problem. Mm. It's not to say that, that you should treat a house the same way you should treat a dog or a human being, but it's to ask, what is the right way to treat the house? It's, you, you can't, by analogy, give it the same treatment you would give your grandmother. But to even consider that there is a right way to do it that takes into account the house as being, and not just as symbol, what it means to you, but to actually be in a relationship to it. And what I was proposing to you before is that, that you understand this potentially as a breakup, like a breakup with someone that you really love. And how do you go about that breakup? And why would you break up with somebody? Maybe you are ready to go your separate ways. But I think that, that whether or not, and maybe you're not ready to break up. Um, maybe you realize, but either way, <laughs> yeah. um, if you do understand it as a breakup, then you'll be able to go through whatever ritual or process you need to so that you feel okay with it. Right, and I, I suppose that my individual plight my petty little life um is just you know back uh, on the top of a pinhead but that this notion of uh, letting go of moving on i think anyone can see their story in that and and is there ways to essentially instill these things with meaning and i, I like for example you talk about something inanimate objects or material objects that we can sort of almost toss them away as if they don't really matter. 
mm-hmm. but actually they have a life to them, right? So how do we, mm, what is that process of grace in a breakup? <laughs> I think it's a pretty bad habit to treat the material things of the world as if they don't matter. Yeah. Because collectively, as humanity, we are now treating the planet as if it were some material thing that doesn't matter. Right. And this ideal of the separate self kind of floating above materiality and, yeah, I moved from this house to that house and I'm not attached. I'm not attached to this thing. I'm not attached to to, to anything material. Um, this is a conceit. This mm. kind of independence is a conceit because you could apply it to human beings too. And there are, I think, distorted spiritual teachings that that counsel us to avoid attachment. But I think that to avoid attachment is to avoid being fully alive. And that real life isn't about protecting yourself from the pain of loss, but it's really going in there and fully loving and then and knowing that you're going to lose everything that you love and being willing to go through the grief of that. Ooh, yes. Then you've lived. Yes. That I read that Eric Fromm wrote something about this, which is like, there is a way not to grieve, but the only option not to grieve is also not to love. Yeah. And who would want that life? And then, so, but then that brings up something for me that I really have been grappling with, which is this notion of non-attachment. And this, you know, speaks directly to Buddhism, I suppose, that, you know, we are all constantly distracted by desire and desire this sort of incessant desire is at the core of suffering i'm like fidgeting around in my chair just to always kind of elicit some sort of pleasant feeling all the way up to like i need my mcmansion in the hills um and that essentially you can cultivate practice to separate to sort of separate yourself from this desire and find what I guess one might call consciousness, something outside of your thoughts, feelings, objects that you perceive through your limited five senses. And that then in this kind of seat of the soul, in this true self, there is this awareness. And one of the things that I have been trying to grapple with is this. Is the fundamental nature of consciousness good or is it neutral? Essentially, if you can cultivate that true awareness outside of feelings, emotions, objects, is that characterized by love, compassion, empathy, or is it something that is just purely neutral and focusable on good, fear, evil da, da, da. the default state of existence is bliss mm. and everything else is a temporary excursion away from that which doesn't mean that these excursions are a mistake ultimately they 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 feed uh, an evolutionary process where uh, life and the universe become more and more alive and being becomes more and more existent, um, more and more complex, more and more related, more and more full. So the question then becomes, okay, 
yeah, desire, births, suffering. But maybe this whole this whole journey into into suffering, this whole excursion, is happening for a reason. Another way to look at it is okay, so yeah, say desire causes suffering, but can what are you gonna do with that information? Can you exercise your will to suppress desire? Yeah. Or could it be that desire needs to be fulfilled and exposed for its false premises before you can even transcend it? And that doesn't mean you're transcending all desire. Maybe it means you're just transcending this desire. I think that the problem isn't desire. The problem is that, is that the primal energy of desire gets diverted onto false yeah. objects uh that don't actually meet the desire, like the McMansion in the hills. Right. You know, what's the real desire there? It's probably not for the McMansion in the hills, because if it were, you would live happily ever after if you had that. Yes. But the same hunger that is grasping for the mansion in the hills isn't satisfied by the mansion in the hills. Right, yeah. So maybe it, what it really wants <clears throat> is the feeling of being at home in the world. Right. But don't know how to get that, don't even know what that is, so I'll go for the mansion. But maybe even to realize that that is what I wanted all along requires that you first get the mansion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I saw <clears throat> like a heat map of one of these McMansions of where people actually spend their time in the McMansion. The breakfast nook. It was clustered in the breakfast nook <laughs> yeah. in, in the bed. And then right. there's, you know, 10,000 square feet of space that never get used. And because right. they never get used, they never get used. You know, because it feels so foreign and that, yes, I think, you know, what you're saying and I think what we might agree upon is that we are essentially always chasing, pursuing happiness through the accumulation of goods and services that will never really serve us. And um, and I want to go back because something that I feel that is so fundamental to your philosophical approach on the human condition is separation and the separate self. So I wonder if you could just, I'd love for you to talk about kind of what that means and sort of how we got there and then play that forward into modern society. What are the implications of it? How do we address it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the separate self is the myth that underlies our entire civilization all of our systems and institutions tap into the myth of separation. And I, I mean myth, not in the sense of some, you know, <laughs> fantasy, some ridiculous yeah, thing, <laughs> but, but a myth in terms of a story that explains the world. Mm. So the story of separation explains who you are. You're a, a separate individual. You are, a soul encased in flesh. You are a Cartesian moat of consciousness, etc., hmm. etc. Et uh, it it answers the question: Why are you here? It's to survive, to reproduce, to maximize your self-interest. There's really almost no why you're here in this story. It, it answers the question: What is the way to live and what are human beings for 
and what constitutes progress. And it is that humans are separate from nature, destined to rise above nature, to dominate nature, to transcend nature, to harness natural forces, to someday no longer need nature. It also says what the nature of reality is and how change happens in the world. What are the ruling powers of this world? Right, right. It's forces in the story of separation. Uh, and I could go on and on. And often what I do in my work is I say, okay, how exactly does that basic paradigm inform our medical system or our economic system right. or our spirituality or our politics? Uh, and you can see the traces of separation in all of these institutions. Yeah. Well, essentially, what are the means by which we can address our growing sense of separation and individualism, even just okay. to become aware of it? Right, right, right. It speaks to this helplessness that I hear so often of what are we going to do about this? Yeah, right. As if it were up to us. So you, you inquired, how do we uh, launch a movement or to, to reverse the tide of separation? Because it seems like it's going to take some mighty effort to accomplish this turnaround. But you know what? The current story did not result from a mighty, intentional, purposeful effort. Right. To like, it's not like we got down and said, okay, things aren't going very well. Let's launch the story of separation. The alternative understanding is that we are carried by a process and a movement that is much, much bigger than anything that we can create or intend. That is to step back from this anthropocentrism. Our future is not fundamentally what we are consciously creating. And this goes against a lot of spiritual teachings where you become the conscious creator of your reality. Right. Where do we get that arrogance? I think it is an extension of the technological mindset, which is that we're going to put the human stamp onto the disordered, chaotic, wild world outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we want to do the same individually through these spiritual practices and collectively by creating a vision of the future and stamping that onto the future. I think that's just as necessary as it is for a fetus, a baby is being born, to make sure that that birth happens. It's not that the fetus has no role. Uh, 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 it's easier to give birth to a live baby than to a stillborn mm -hmm. because the livingness of the baby responds to the contractions, the birth process of the mother. And that response is itself part of the process. So right now, like a, a baby being born, we are subject to what we experience as titanic forces. And we don't know what's happening to us and we don't know what to do, but we respond to those in whatever way that we know how. We understand those in the way that we understand them, responding accordingly. We have no idea really what's going on here. Part of our response is to make meanings and to try to impose them onto what's happening. 
to try to control what's happening. It's not bad to do that. That itself is part of the response. And to say we're not going to try to control it is itself a form of control. And this search for, okay, what are we supposed to do now? It, it taps into the, the lineage of we always, our role is to be the doers. The doer, yeah. 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 And, and that is necessary when, sorry to run on here, but. No, no, this that's, is good. That's necessary when there is no larger doing that we can participate in. And I'm, what I'm offering is at the current stage right now, not to stop doing and stop responding, but we are being carried by an inconceivable, mysterious process. Right. Yeah, the, it's, it's, that's interesting because it, in some ways it defies the instinct that I have of like, we need a spiritual awakening that we, you know, I just read, it was Martin Luther King Day on Monday. I took a little bit of time to actually read, imagine that, um, the letter from a Birmingham jail where he essentially is addressing a bunch of clergy in Birmingham that have, uh, that are essentially speaking out against marching against passive resistance and nonviolence and everything that the Southern Christian leadership conference was doing with Martin Luther King. And so he writes this response from the Birmingham jail, which is essentially like, you know, we are all connected that essentially if my daughter uh, can read, but your daughters can't, then I am poor. You know, essentially, you know, and, and you've heard many of these essentially interconnected, interdependent spiritual messages, you know, come to the fore that have over time addressed the salient societal problems or issues where, you know, like if you look at slavery, the abolition movement had its roots in Quakerism. I mean, oftentimes when we hit these loggerheads um, that the answers tend to lie in our spiritual underpinnings. And, you know, and I want to talk about politics because I, I don't think the change is going to come from there. And but I think what, what's interesting about what you're saying is that oh, you're like, Jeff, no, 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 don't wait. Jesus is not going to roll in <laughs> and say like, oh, you know, everybody, we've been misguided. Here again are your universal truths. Everyone get back in line. You know, capitalism's built some nice plumbing for society to function, but we're pumping shit through it. You've got to like work through a lens of these values and you'll be cool. But what I'm hearing is that that's not going to come from us necessarily. It is being born within us and from us. Mm. It's not something that we can engineer. It's it, our engineering efforts are part of it, but it is itself beyond our engineering. It's beyond our contrivance. It's beyond our understanding. We can understand it maybe in retrospect, maybe in hundreds of years now we can we can name, here is what the transition was. Um, but from where we are now, we cannot map it out. We cannot plan it. And therefore, current politics in terms of, okay, let's form some policies that are going to bring us through this transition. Um, all of those will fall woefully short of the task. However, we can also sense 
that there is a destination. Otherwise, we would have no hope. The hope doesn't come from any rational projection that we can make it through this, the current emergency. Because what we need to make it through doesn't even exist in the vocabulary of reason as society accepts it. I'm not saying it's irrational, but according to the premises of that, are, that the old story of separation establishes, it is impossible. According to what we, I mean, that's part of, us, of the myth. The myth tells us what's possible and what isn't. According to what it says is possible, there's no way. There's no way anything's ever going to change. I mean, is it possible for there to be true peace in the Mideast, say, between Israelis and Palestinians? I'm not talking like a ceasefire. I'm talking about brotherhood. Right. I'm talking about Fraternity. <laughs> forgiveness. Yes. Yeah. Redemption. Right. Healing. Is that, I mean, it's not even like the most modest peace proposals seem to be politically naive. So it's impossible according to what we have established mm -hmm. in our common perception as possible. Right. So that means that, that anything that we can constitute politically won't reach anywhere close to the destination that we paradoxically know exists. Therefore, to get to that destination, we have to accept a different guidance, a guidance that lies outside the realm of what we have agreed is possible. Mm. We have some help in this journey because most people that I meet anyway have in fact experienced the impossible. They've experienced things that the old story embodied in science tells them is possible. And these anomalous experiences, it's as if they are coming from the future. And each one that we experience creates a thread linking present with that particular future. These are the, the, the signposts, the breadcrumbs that we can follow to reach a place that we don't know how to reach. I mean, politics, that, that spectrum from right to left is a one-dimensional spectrum. Right, yeah. So the, the future that we want isn't only outside that, those two poles, but on the same axis. It's totally in a different dimension. Mm, yes. The things that need to happen are not even considered political issues. Right. It's yeah. sort of essentially spiritual issues, potentially. Or they could be, you could see them as being part of a different kind of politics. But um, we, we talked about this in the course, you know, the what's left out of the conversation when we define the issues as being a certain set of positions. Right. Like, you know, Obamacare, should it be repealed or not? Well, what gets left out is the entire universe of holistic and alternative treatments. I mean, they're like, we don't question the healthcare system itself. It's just kind of like who pays for it. Mm -hmm. Or if we're talking about education, more or less public funding, does that even consider the question of school as an institution of, of the industrial age to train people to be compliant, obedient factory workers 
I mean, if we can go down the line, like, like I think the most important issues today are not really discussed because the, the spectacle, the froth and controversy mesmerizes us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think Marianne Williamson says we keep watering the leaves mm -hmm. and not the roots. We're not, it's not that we're not interested in examining, exhuming the roots, but I don't think, and this is certainly not what mass media is interested in. So it's a, it needs to be sort of a self-propelled journey to look deeper. You know, I think one of the, I think, very beautiful pieces of your message is around the importance of not dehumanizing others. And, you know, when I think of, like, global warming, um, and I think of, like, the oil and gas executive, that wakes up in the morning, even that person, I don't think wakes up in the morning with the intention of, I'm going to warm the globe today. Right. Let's see. 1,415 parts per million. By the end of the day, 420. You know, like nobody is doing that. No one. Um, but in the absence of a new story of essentially what I think of are values he goes to work, and then that's the natural output. In the absence of values, medical innovation gets used for the pharmaceutical industry that just essentially keeps people on drugs instead of off of drugs. Agricultural innovation goes to sponsored by Monsanto instead of actually feeding the people of the world. And I wonder if you think that that is essentially what this new story is potentially about. Is it about the reinstilling of a value-based society or value-based culture that then will change consciousness and then all of those things will change? Leaders, laws, policies, platforms? Not so much. No. No. I think that, I mean, most people hold beautiful universal values. It's that the story hijacks the values and diverts our creative energies toward things that pretend to serve those values, but actually do not. And, and it's true that, that values also do evolve and deepen over time. But it's, as you were saying, it's not that the, the oil company executive does not value um, peace, love, fulfillment, beauty, truth, mm -hmm. if you could extract him from this, the reinforcing circumstances of his life, then you could probably have just as, I mean, you could take Donald Trump and if you got him in the right situation, you could have a beautiful conversation with him. So the question is, what are the circumstances that pervert those values or redirect those values, hijack those values? Right. Yeah, this, well, I think it goes back to separation that then always induces some sort of self-interested behavior. So I was, I, do you know this guy, Stephen West? He has a podcast called Philosophize This. Really great. And mm -hmm. he was talking about this, uh, I guess you'd call him a political theorist, John Rawls. Yeah, who, um, right. Theory of justice, yeah. Right, and distributive yeah. justice and things like that. And he brings up this example, I think it was quite interesting, which is like, um, 
let's say you've got a whole group of people over at your house, or you're even Donald Trump, and you get delivered a pizza from the pizza guy, um, and you like open the box and you're like, oh, but wait, this pizza looks great, but it's not cut up. It's just one big pie that hasn't been cut up. And your job is to cut the pizza up. But with the caveat is you don't know what piece you're going to end up with. Mm-hmm. So how do you cut it up? Right. And <laughs> I think, I mean, <laughs> you can answer the question for yourself, but I think even Donald Trump might make this calculation of like, well, I'm just, it's, just, it's a socialist cut up. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to cut it up evenly because I don't know what piece I'm going to end up with, right? Right. But that's not how distributive justice functions, that essentially you end up with a big piece, or you start with a big piece, or you start with a small piece. And then, you know, it's it's up to us to figure out how to create a sense of justice around that. And I I bring that up because I think that the most mm, visible badge of separation right now in modern culture is like income inequality, Mm -hmm. you know, and polarization, atomization. Yeah. Okay. So you, you brought up dehumanization. I didn't really address that. Um, And then you're bringing up John Rawls. These are actually connected because as you're illustrating with the pizza metaphor, what John Rawls said is that the just society is one where you set it up and you don't know which role you're going to be. Your role is assigned randomly. Right. So what, what, would you, what society would you choose knowing that you don't know what, who you're going to be? And, and it's a very beautiful idea. Yeah. And it taps into the understanding that we are all on some level of equal worth that everybody should have a, a fair lot. Right. And that, that somebody who is in some miserable sweatshop uh, doesn't deserve that any more than you would deserve it. Like you're not better or worse than any other person. Dehumanization is a necessary, I would even call it a prerequisite for an unjust society. You have to have some way to explain to yourself why someone deserves to be a slave or why it's okay that this person is working behind the counter at Sabaro where and I'm, you know, getting on a first class flight to Tahiti. Like right. yeah, there otherwise the incongruity of that is disturbing. Yeah. So so dehumanization is necessary to for an unjust society to operate. Mm-hmm. And the habits, the problem, I th- one of the big problems, so if we accept that dehumanization is um, at the root of a lot of our social problems, and it's certainly at the root of warfare, it's, it's again universal. You have to dehumanize the enemy, demonize the enemy even, associate them with evil in order to justify bombing them and killing them. Right. And this pattern of thought, this habit, of perception called dehumanization is so pervasive that people employ it even in service to healing 
the effects of dehumanization. <laughs> yeah. Like so, they they employ dehumanization uh, as a way to arouse hatred and indignation at those oil companies. If I were one of those executives, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't wake up in the morning feeling good about my work. I wouldn't sacrifice the future of of the whole planet for my own greed. Like you you muster a story like that, and then you get people really so riled up at this diabolical enemy that they will do anything it takes to tear them down, and the problem is solved. So it taps into the belief that the solution to a problem is to kill something. That is also characteristic of modern medicine and modern agriculture, and even to some extent, modern spirituality. So you can see like how all-encompassing this way of thinking is, yeah. and therefore how deep the revolution is that we want to that we want to undergo. Right. Yes. And so, playing that forward a bit, if you're, I suppose, fashion yourself a conscious human being or an aware human being, um, how would then you go about addressing? injustices that you see in the world that then are perpetuated by certain roles or figureheads or models, whether that be Mr. Exxon, Mr. Trump, whatever, essentially without dehumanizing. What, what is the approach? I'll preface this by saying that sometimes it might be necessary to fight Mr. Exxon or Mr. <laughs> Trump. But even if that's the case, your fight is going to be more effective if you actually understand this person mm. and why they're doing what they're doing, rather than abdicating any attempt to explain it by saying, well, they're just bad. Right. When you say they're just bad, you're, you're, not, you're, you're, you're resisting any attempt to explain, to understand. There's no understanding there. It's a substitute for understanding. So even if you are going to fight them, demonizing them in your own mind is, is a liability. Right. And it also forecloses any possibility of any other response besides fighting. But if you understand, what is it that makes a Donald Trump? What are the, what, what are, what are the totality of circumstances that causes the fracking executive to, to do what he's doing? Right. Then you have other options besides defeating that person. You can also maybe find some way to change the conditions. If you don't do that, if you don't understand the conditions that create a Donald Trump, and I'm not wanting to name him as the bogeyman here. Yeah, sure. I, I've yeah, never yeah. met the guy. Um, he might, I mean, who knows? By you know? many accounts, he's lovely in person. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't examine those circumstances, even if you do take him down, guess what? The circumstances are still there. Still there. You're going to get a new Donald Trump. Right. Or somebody, you know, some new, new occupant of a role that is systemically necessary. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I often hear this kind of nostalgia for Barack Obama, and then, which also brings me to the point of like, actually, well, nostalgia actually means our pain. But that, you know, the good old days of like a leader that was graceful, compassionate, without controversy you know um but then of course the conditions for our current situation were 
essentially that soil was cultivated over that period of time. So it's not it's not fair for to be kind of looking at figureheads per se and saying and attributing <coughs> human condition to various you know, to various figureheads when you're essentially you're not addressing the underlying root cause. But it's comforting. Yeah, it is comforting, yes. It's, it's, there's a, a perverse comfort in ascribing the evils of the world to some evil people. Even yes. if they are these, you know, ultra-powerful Illuminati that you could never take down, there's still a comfort there because in principle, at least you know what to do. You know how to solve the problem. It's to take those fuckers down. Yes. That vent, that, that, that outlet for the energy of not knowing what to do does us a huge disservice because if we could stew in the, in the helplessness and, and not divert onto a ready false solution, maybe we'd be able to actually find some real solutions. I think that the, the warfare that we see among our political figures, it's, it's an outgrowth of a more generalized polarization of society mm. or even a barometer of that. Mm. Yeah. So, yes, I think that there is a path toward a restorative politics. It involves rehumanization, just as restorative justice um, puts victim and perpetrator together and offers the opportunity for apology and forgiveness, offers an opportunity for each to really hear the other's story. That's what's rehumanizing. To yeah. hear your story, if I hear the, the story of why you, you know, locked me in the closet and starved me for four days when I thought I was coming here to record a course, like... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's how we got you up here. And then, of course, there's the reality of the torture chamber. But Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But if I understand, like, you know your whole background. And I, I'm like, oh, I understand now why you did that. Then yes. there's a possibility of real forgiveness. Yeah. Real forgiveness is difficult. Real forgiveness is not an act of indulgence. That's fake forgiveness. Real forgiveness only comes through a meeting of the souls. And one way to do that is to tell your story and to have that story really be heard. Mm. So I think politically, we can do the same to create conditions and starting at the grassroots even, um, not necessarily just the leaders, but starting at the grassroots where, where people um, can hear each other's stories. Then they can't dehumanize each other anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think what it is in some ways, we were talking about Hannah Arendt a bit, which is mm -hmm. essentially, you know, she would claim that essentially the conditions that lead to like authoritarianism, totalitarianism are like a real sense for belonging that is missing, that there is no identity. So then you can roll in with a red cap and, you know, fancy slogan and get people all riled up, kind of ratchet up the fear, serve up an enemy and off you go. But that really what we're lacking is sort of, I think what you're saying, which are forums for the exchange of ideas amongst free individuals or the exchange of stories that can essentially create a level of humanization. I mean, you know, I, I guess the dominant narrative in American culture is like, oh, you've got a bunch of liberal 
cappuccino sipping folks on the coasts. And then we've got like a bunch of folks in kind of agrarian and manufacturing rust belt um, mid Midwest flyover states or whatever. And that have been quote unquote left behind. And that these are the folks that then, you know, like essentially out of, desperation, fear, whatever, voted for Trump. Like, this is the narrative, you know? And that are there ways to essentially create forums where people can hear each other again? Because it's hard to hate up close. It's hard to hate up close. Yeah, and and one of these Trump voting, quote, deplorables. Right. You know, if you really hear their life story, you can't deplore them. You can't hate them. Yeah. And the same thing, like if one of them could hear the story of an illegal immigrant who, you know. It's the same I mean, story. story. Yeah. Yes. Like I these, mean, these are heartbreaking stories. Yeah. What, what it takes for somebody to leave their family and come with their children with no, with no guarantee that they're ever, ever going to make it. I mean, and, and the horrors that happen to them. You cannot hear those stories and uphold the standard right wing, you know, narrative about the Im- immigrants. Yeah. You don't have to even see the, the paradigm of punishment that you were referencing before just keeps coming back and back and back. You know, it's like it can become like, well, let's make them really let's make them feel bad by telling the story as an act of violence. There has to be an attitude of generosity in and, and of peace in the sharing of stories. I'm also just, I want to continue to mine this story component and and how we actually create structures for this exchange of story and idea. I mean, is it that what we need to return to is more local, decentralized forms of community? I read this quote the other night, the other day, I think John Maynard Keene's um, quote, it's easier to ship recipes than cakes and biscuits, which is sort of like on the surface, kind of like neither here nor there. But then when you essentially think of like, well, you know, this pen was, the ink was probably made somewhere and then this was made in China and then it was shipped over here and now we're sitting mm-hmm. here in Topanga. That like, essentially, if that we've developed great piping um, to share information and technology or recipes essentially and is the part of the solution being able to empower create structures and systems that that reward sort of decentral distributed leadership decentralized organization where people are actually can have that exchange of story Um, and what does that look like yeah, the answer to the question is yes. Yeah. Uh, as far as what does it look like? The decentralization of production and the distribution of production for most things makes a lot of sense and would certainly bring more connection and community and meaning into people's lives. There are some things that do not suit themselves toward local production, yeah. microchips and things like that, right. perhaps. 
most things that are produced globally should be much more local food, shelter, uh, entertainment. Mm. Uh, but I think there's another level too, that even the recipes should be more local right, yeah. Yeah. because they reference local conditions and properly speaking should come from local culture, which is not just a, a, um, decoration on a place, but is actually rooted in and part of a place, even an outgrowth of a place. The culture is part of the land. The land is part of the culture. Yeah. So when you're talking about recipes, you know, you're talking about a cultural product that I think also should be Fair. decentralized. But at the same time, there is this whole ascent of humanity to a mass global society has also happened for a reason. So it's not to, I, I don't advocate completely dismantling the collective global intelligence, but to revalidate the other levels of organization and, and intelligence. I want to talk to round it out about a bit about regenerative agriculture because, and its role in climate change, because I met you through Ryland Englehart and mm -hmm. the Kiss the Ground folks, and we actually did a course with them um, around soil and the carbon sequestration properties of soil. Um, that honestly was, I thought it was like, this is a very philanthropic thing to do with them, and we'll put it on the platform, mm -hmm. and it'll be like, look like we're fulfilling like our role as like good social impact conscious company. I mean, admittedly, it was a little bit of that. It was, um, and it was so popular. I mean, we had like 30-some-odd thousand people sign up for that thing. I'm like, well, they're not going to be all farmers, obviously. But I wonder how you think about regenerative agriculture, how you understand it in the overall hmm. context of climate change and addressing it. Yeah. Climate change is another issue that my opinion is off the spectrum of opinion, <laughs> you know, which is defined on the one end That's by your happy place <laughs> by catastrophe and yeah. on the other end by skepticism mm. or denialism, as you might call it. Uh, I prefer skepticism. Um, what the, this is one of my operating principles is that in any polarized debate, the key to the debate lies in what neither side is talking about or in the assumptions that they both share unconsciously. And one of them is that in the environmental issue, the most important thing to be talking about is carbon. So kiss the ground. I, I am a big proponent, a, a enthusiastic proponent of regenerative agriculture. But for me, it's not because of carbon sequestration. It's because I understand soil as one of the organs of a living being called Gaia or mm. called earth. Mm. I understand that without healthy soil, earth will survive no better than you would survive without skin. Yes, it sequesters carbon or helps modulate the levels of carbon in the atmosphere. But in my mind, more importantly, it helps to regulate the water cycle. Healthy soil absorbs rainfall that would otherwise run off and be a flood. And then as it absorbs it, replenishes aquifers and waters plants, trees, especially grasses that then transpire the water into what would otherwise be the, the dry season. 
creating clouds, recycling that moisture as rain, extending the dry season. So thereby first mitigating floods and then um, preventing drought. Someone was telling me um, in, uh, I think it was Jamaica or something, one of the Car Caribbean nations where in the recent hurricane, none of the villages that had intact uh, coastal wetlands suffered any loss of life. Mm. It was only the ones where there had been development and wetlands draining where there had been catastrophe because these wetlands, um, you know, absorb the incoming uh, water. And the same thing happens for land-based uh, wetlands. So basically what I'm seeing, and this is part of this, the basic mentality of warfare, which is that if you want to solve a situation, solve a problem, the first thing you do is you find the enemy or you find the one thing yeah. to attack. Yeah. So yeah. carbon dioxide yeah. fits the bill. Right. It's one thing to attack. Better yet, it's quantifiable. So we can use all of the methods and mindsets of accounting to minimize a number. And I think that as in any kind of reductionism, the important stuff gets left out. So I personally do not think that, that global warming per se is the biggest threat. I think that it could easily result from ecocide, from the destruction of the organs of Gaia that just like your organs help maintain homeostasis. Right. But we could equally see catastrophic cooling or catastrophic fluctuations um, and I, there's a lot more to, I wrote a whole book on this, so it's hard for me to summarize it sure. now, but just as an example of the real issue being off the radar screen of conventional polarized positions. Yes. It's almost like you are a functional medicine doctor applying the theories of functional medicine outside of medicine <laughs> on yeah. some level, like to climate, to politics that always not really i mean it's not that the orthodoxy and and the conversation up here doesn't matter but that there is a root cause that really is the thing that needs to be focused on and you know it's funny that you just I'm like i'm having sort of like minor epiphany right now about what you're saying and like this regenerative agriculture course that we did because my sense is that of those 30 some odd thousand people that signed up for the, that course how many people are going to be a regenerative like agricultural farmer five three ten twenty fifty i don't know but my sense is that it is a that there is a thirst to feel a part of nature where people have felt so divorced from it. And I think that that might have been the reason why people are, they're innately drawn to this notion of connection. Um, and don't always, but don't have always all the resources available to, to get to that. Yeah. And I think maybe we could wrap up by saying that that actually answers the question that you posed earlier. Like, what is the nature of this movement mm. that will reverse the tide of separation? Yeah. And it is exactly 
this it's reunion it's it's reconnection powered by what you're describing this yearning to connect to nature again to be part of the global reuniting of all that we have separated off yeah. all of the beings all of the people the races the cultures the the living things of this earth um, to come together again i think this is the the tide of our time that mm. will carry us into a much more beautiful future yeah thank you Charles. yeah thanks Thanks for listening to today's show with Charles Eisenstein. If you're interested in learning more about Charles, his books, his podcasts, etc., please go to charleseisenstein.org. And if you're interested in accessing Charles's course, Political Hope, and trying commune membership for free for 14 days, go to onecommune.com join. That's it from the commune for this week. Please subscribe and leave a review. And more importantly, email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I always love hearing from you directly. That's it from the commune for this week. I'm Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>